0: I mean, if Trump had a very smooth personality, he is still fundamentally breaking up uh, the core principles around which the Republican Party, uh, at least since uh, 1989, has has built a, a general direction. And he's doing it with the level of populist energy that you have to have.
1: That's Newt Gingrich, former Speaker of the House and 2012 Republican presidential candidate. In early July, he was at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado, talking about the November election and the American spirit of rebellion the Trump and Sanders campaigns have roused. This is Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. We bring you compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a non-partisan venue for dealing with critical issues. Newt Gingrich is on the short list of potential running mates Donald Trump is considering. The presumed Republican nominee is expected to announce his vice presidential choice this week. In Aspen, Gingrich brushed off the idea as wild speculation— But he's listed as a serious contender by several news outlets.
0: So none of you should bet on all this. I suspect if it did come to anything, uh, we'd have to have a very, very long talk. And then, depending on that talk, of course, then I'd have to sit down with Donald and have another long talk.
1: Later in this episode, we'll hear from another former Republican presidential candidate, Mitt Romney. Romney also served as governor of Massachusetts. He talks about Trump and the election and discusses why the Republican Party is struggling to appeal to certain groups.
2: The fastest part of the demographic growth profile today is people 65 years of age and older. And we can do pretty well with them, but they're not going to be around forever. And where we're not doing so well is with millennials, young people, and with the the large and growing minority populations.
1: First, Newt Gingrich sits down with Ann Corlogos. She's former U.S. Labor Secretary and chaired the board of the Aspen Institute.
3: I think we have standing room only because in 48 hours or so, I think Newt's life and Calista's started to change a bit. So there's a a, a growing interest in the vice presidential vetting process. And I'd like to start by quoting, to set the stage for everyone, uh, John Adams, serving as the first vice president, said about the role. In this, I am nothing, but I may be everything. Grace Coolidge, on the other hand, told her husband Calvin when he was offered the vice presidency, you're not going to take it, are you? And he said, I suppose I have to. What are you going to say to Callista when Donald Trump calls and offers it to you?
0: I want to say, do you remember what Grace Coolidge advised <laughs> her husband? I mean, this would be a very, first of all, there's a lot of speculation. There is, none of you should bet, as a friend of mine did on Fox last night, Karen Timaldi, who's a political reporter at the Post, bet all $100 of her phony money that I would be chosen and then wrote me a note and said, with my track record of betting, you are now guaranteed not to be the choice. So none of you should bet on all this. It's wild speculation. I suspect if it did come to anything, uh, we'd have to have, A very, very long talk, and then, depending on that talk, uh, Chris and I have to sit down with Donald and have another long talk.
3: Well, we'll get into a little bit, if we will, um, of what you see as the vice presidential role, but I wanna go back a bit and set the scene about you. In the 1980s, I had the privilege of knowing you when you were a younger congressman on the Hill, and we called you the C-SPAN baby because in 1979, you may recall, C-SPAN started to cover the House of Representatives, and you had the most fabulous platform because you also had something to say. In the beginning of that C-SPAN coverage, you were smart, you had bold ideas. I think then it was called the Opportunity Society, and we were in the Reagan administration trying to have tax reform and regulatory reform and help people, amazing. That became ultimately I guess grew into the contract of America for America in the 90s. But Arthur Brooks in his book The Conservative Heart pointed out that he went to you when he became in a leadership role because he had admired your leadership role on the hill when you were evolving into a majority Republican party. And he was interested in your wisdom as a leader And he was surprised when you said that your biggest problem wasn't the press or the media. It wasn't even a calcitrant president. It was the minority attitude of the now majority Republican party in the House. Can you talk about that a bit because the majority Republican party in the House today may be disappointing people. And as vice president, could you help repair that with your knowledge of the Hill?
0: Yeah, I think uh, just a couple of quick anecdotes. Uh, When Phil Graham switched parties, he'd been a Democrat and he became a Republican, and a very, very bright PhD in economics professor. I sat on the back bench with him one afternoon, and I said, so what's, what's the real difference between majority and minority? And he said, you know, when you're in the majority, you have to have an idea. You then have to have hearings to shape the idea into a bill. You then have to write the bill. You then have to go through a markup in subcommittee and committee. You then have to go to the floor. Then you have to go to conference with the Senate. And at every stage, it's evolving and you're trying to get enough votes and it's constant work. He said when you're in the minority, you wake up occasionally, vote no, and go back to sleep. (laughs) And that captured the great crisis of the modern Republican Party. And people don't understand this. Um, I was very fortunate, I came along at a time when I could study under Reagan uh, and the one House Republican who understood uh, being a majority, and that's Jack Kemp. Uh, and both Kemp, and Kemp, of course, was a total outcast in the Republican Party because he was a football quarterback, he, he was weird, uh, he, he kept doing tax stuff and he wasn't on the tax committee. His next door neighbor, Barbara Connival, who was the chair the ranking Republican on taxes, hated the fact that Kemp got all the publicity on taxes when Connival should get the publicity, although Connival, of course, being a good Republican, didn't want any publicity. Um, and so I studied under Kemp and Reagan. Now, Reagan was an FDR Democrat who became a Republican, uh, partly over communism and partly over taxes. And, and uh, the, the big impact that, that uh, Nancy and her father had on him in terms of, he became much more conservative after 1947. Uh, But but the driving force there was having actually encountered communism and concluded that it was real. Um, So Reagan had his natural FDR model of, of course you're going to govern. Well, if you're going to govern, you have to figure out what does the country need, what does the country want, how do you solve it, and how do you communicate it so the country will give you permission. And then when they give you permission, how do you implement it? Well, those are all very positive, but hard things to do. Uh, The other person I was fortunate enough to study was was Margaret Thatcher, who, uh, if you ever want to see, I mean, a brilliant small work uh, is uh, a book by Claire Berlinski on Margaret Thatcher. Um, I think it's entitled There Is No Alternative, Why Margaret Thatcher Matters. It's an absolutely brilliant book, that explains the core of Thatcherism. Uh, And just to add some fuel to the fire here, I would argue that that Trump is much closer to Thatcher than he is to Reagan, in that Thatcher was a genuine revolutionary. Uh, She knew she was a revolutionary, and she was determined to break socialism, and she was determined to break the power of the coal miners' union, which had become so strong, it directly threatened representative democracy. And so she, she saw herself as a Churchillian figure, engaged head on, in fundamentally changing Britain. And she largely succeeded, not totally, but largely. Reagan was in many ways totally focused on defeating the Soviet empire and at the margins, moving America back towards more free enterprise, less regulation. But he did not see himself as a person whose mission was to profoundly overhaul Washington. So I look at what they're doing and I think they have a couple of problems. One is, if you're a conservative, you have to get up every morning understanding that the news media will largely oppose you. Um, At least 80%. And therefore, you have to design your policies so when they get done opposing you, you're still winning. I mean, it doesn't do you any good to get up and whine. If if, if the news media intimidates you, become a liberal. Uh, Then they'll like you. Uh, But if if you're genuinely conservative... So, for example, when I first got elected, um, and, and a lot of things in politics don't change... The, the time and Newsweek stories the week before we took control for the first time in 40 years, at a moment, by the way, of enormous disbelief in the media, none of whom thought we'd win. Uh, literally none. You can go back and look at the video. None. The week before, the title of the cover of both covers, by accident, was uh, "Angry White Men." Nothing changes. <laughs> you know. After I've been in office three weeks. I'm sorry, after the election, but before I was sworn in, Time did a cover story of me as Scrooge holding Tiny Tim's broken crutch. <laughs> Wasn't enough to steal it, I broke it. <laughs> Entitled, How Mean Will Gingrich's America Be to the Poor? Question mark, which proved it was nonpartisan. Um, because it was a question mark. I mean, They weren't, made, they weren't <laughs> rendering judgment. Uh, the following week, Newsweek had me as a Dr. Zeus figure entitled, The Grinch That Stole Christmas. Now this was the entry point uh, and explains a lot of my early polling numbers. But here's what the middle class got. Oh, he's for welfare reform. They went right past every effort by liberal reporters in New York to make me look bad and said, oh, he's for welfare reform. Okay. We became the first re-elected majority since 1928. I mean, people are talking about how much damage did closing the government do? None. It's all the Washington mythology. Nobody had been re-elected as a House Republican majority since 1928. And we got re-elected because we were ferociously conservative. We were willing to fight on things like welfare reform. But here's the point. If you're, the, if you're a conservative, you had better pick 70% plus issues. Well, welfare reform actually at its peak was a 92% issue. Even 88% of the people in welfare thought it ought to be changed. Well, at a 92% issue, when the New York Times and CBS News and everybody else gets done tearing you down, you've, you drop to 60 or 65%. You pick a 52% issue, you'll get killed. So, one of the tricks for conservative leadership is always find fights where you inherently have a very large majority going in. And always frame the fights in terms of a better America and always describe it in personal terms. Those are the lessons of Ronald Reagan.
3: Let me pick up on that then, and to the role of vice president, particularly if you had the role. We go from Contract for America, Opportunity Society, to Paul Ryan and his agenda. Could you as vice president be an influence on President Trump, and have a merger, if you will, with Paul Ryan and the agenda there, and help repeat what you experienced that you've just described uh, in a majority House and hopefully a majority Senate.
0: Well, I mean, first of all, if somebody became vice president, I think that, that uh, Vice President Biden would confirm this later on today. Uh, the number one definition of the vice president's job is the president. Right. So who knows? I mean, some presidents give a lot of power to vice presidents. Lyndon Johnson had, uh, you know, two and a half years of misery because the Kennedy staff and Bobby Kennedy didn't like him, so they isolated him, which of course led to a certain payback when he became president. Uh, so I mean, you, you've got to look at different. You know, Dan well, Quayle had a limited. And I'm role trying for to push yeah. you a
3: little into what you think from your conversations, perhaps with.
0: I haven't Mr. had any Trump. conversations about this. All right. I mean, I have no idea. You know, my my working assumption is. And again, Chris and i have to talk a lot of this out in detail because it, it really messes up your life. I mean, you know, you're going to we have a lot of fun things we're doing. We're about to launch a movie on women in the American Revolution, and we're doing a bunch of other things. And then all of a sudden you go, oh no, no, why don't you go over? It? So I have a very simple test question. If it's about funerals, I'm not interested. Okay? But if now, it's a, if it's, it's
3: about a merger, that. if it's if, about if an I can ability call to that, try to get done. Yeah.
0: And at least, at least Trump has said over and over. He needs a vice president who, who understands Washington because he knows he doesn't. Well, if he really means that, and who knows? But I mean, if he really means that, because again, people often maneuver a lot. Um, I'm just finishing a book uh, called "Those Angry Days," which is a brilliant study uh, of FDR from 39 to 42. And you watch FDR maneuver every morning, and I mean, you have no way of knowing what he's doing because he's deliberately deceitful and deliberately maneuvering. Uh, and very frightened because he lost the, the uh, Supreme Court fight and he was very frightened that he would lose popular opinion. So, he, so in terms of leading from behind, he liked to be about 35 points behind where the public was. Uh, and it was, it's, it's fascinating. So I just say that because people think, oh, Trump doesn't quite know what he's doing. Well, go read FDR. Uh, I mean, all of these guys shift around and change, as, as Obama did on a whole range of issues.
3: Well, we'll, uh, so, we'll-
0: so I start with the idea... You'd have to look at, at, at how you're gonna put it together. You're gonna to have to look at what the real relations are with the senior staff, because again, you always have the tension between the chief of staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you had a strong vice president, then you gotta work out what, what's, the, what's the arrangement here so that the chief of staff isn't so threatened that they spend all day you know, trying to screw you up. The, the other thing I'd say though, and, I, and I've, I've tried to say this to Ryan and others, we need to go back to the constitutional system. Now, I'm gonna tell you a brief anecdote about Jimmy Carter and Tip O'Neill, but it illustrates the point. Ryan and and, and McConnell have enormous leverage. I mean, McConnell's in a position, let's assume for a second, which many of you will find horrifying, that Trump wins. The first thing Trump's gotta think about is, gee, I'd like to appoint a cabinet. The first person you have to talk to about deploying the cabinet is the Senate Majority Leader. And so if McConnell and he are not dancing, he has a huge problem. He's gonna want a whole number of things to pass the House and Senate. The total power of scheduling, except in the most rare circumstances, is the Speaker. I mean, in that sense, it's a terrific job. I mean, you have complete power. And so if Paul Ryan decides he doesn't like what Trump is doing, he has a simple you don't have to fight him. It just won't get scheduled. So here's my anecdote, which I've told Paul, because I'm, I'm trying to get him to understand. This is not like dealing with Obama, which is a different problem with a different, you know. If, if you have a president of your own party, so it's 1981. Jimmy Carter has won as an outsider. His entire team is from Atlanta. None of them understand anything about Washington. They arrive. Hamilton Jordan is his chief of staff. Staff member comes into O'Neill's office and says, uh, by the way, your family's been given really bad seats at the inaugural. <laughs> because, of course, all the Georgians got all the good seats. O'Neill picks up the phone, calls the White House, and says, could you connect me to Hannibal Jerkin? (laughs) And a a minute later, Hamilton Jordan comes on, and he says, is this Hannibal Jerkin? He said, well, sir, this is Hamilton Jordan. He said, well, Hannibal, (laughs) I have been told that my family has really bad seats, and I I want you to understand that uh, I realize the new president, one, is a reformer, and I realize that You all don't have any great respect for the United States Congress. and I appreciate the the sincerity of your positions. I also do want you to understand that I am the host for the inaugural and that you have every right to give my family bad seats. Of course, as a result of that, nothing you want will be scheduled for the first year. And he hangs up. 20 minutes later, his staffer comes in and says, do you know your family's now in the first row? (laughs) (laughs) It ain't about friendship. The Constitution's designed to balance power so that people don't have to like each other, but they had better learn to work with each other.
3: Can the new administration, if it's Trump, react fast enough to satisfy that populism that is clearly a movement,
0: not a new party? Here's the thing I find fascinating. Sanders actually represents a parallel phenomenon to Trump with the exception that Sanders actually represents a continuation of the movements which have been underway. So, we've been moving towards more and more government health care. He'd take it all the way. We've been moving towards more and more subsidization of college. He would take it all the way. We've been gradually getting more open about drugs. He would take it all the way. But Sanders doesn't represent a disruption. He represents an acceleration. And... He did much better than I thought he would, uh, partially a tribute to what's happened on campuses where we've had two generations now of, of uh, people being taught left-wing values, uh, partly because if you go onto a large, these campuses are now huge, so you go onto a major college campus and you say, look, I'm gonna give you free college, legalized marijuana, and you can be happy for the 23 years it'll take you to graduate. What- <laughs> What is there to oppose in that that campaign theme? So Sanders is appealing to people who are alienated from the establishment, but he's actually appealing within a framework that has been growing now, at least since the mid to late 60s. Uh, Trump is very different. Trump Trump is a, and I think there's a good reason why you have people who are so offended by him and so angry about him. Uh, I mean, some of it's personality, but that's not the core of this. I mean, if Trump had a very smooth personality, he is still fundamentally breaking up Uh, the core principles around which the Republican Party, uh, at least since uh, 1989, has has built a a general direction. And and I think, um, and he's doing it with the level of populist energy that you have to have. This this is the great conundrum. When you look at great populist leaders, and I, I always tell people, to understand Trump, assume that he is one part Andrew Jackson as a disruptor, one part Theodore Roosevelt with manic energy, and one part P.T. Barnum with constant selling. <laughs> that blend of those three explains sort of the Trumpian phenomenon. And that, frankly, is fairly offensive. I mean, if you're part of an establishment which goes to think tanks and comes to Aspen and has conversations appropriate for corporate boardrooms, <laughs> guys who talk at fourth grade levels and speak in the language of a good working class bar just drive you crazy. And if they succeed, they really drive you crazy <laughs> because they disrupt everything you thought you invested your life in.
1: You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. At the Aspen Ideas Festival in early July, Newt Gingrich spoke with former U.S. Labor Secretary Anne Korlogos. In the second part of their talk, the two discuss what roles moral leadership and character are playing in the presidential contest.
3: It was said that Reagan's, uh, I think it was his nomination speech uh, the first time around, he used the word people 89 times. Uh, That seems to be missing in the dialogue, except maybe with Bernie and Trump, to your point, and yet at the same time, go back to John Adams, he was wary of politicians. He felt they became corrupted. Therefore, we needed uh, moral authority and leadership and character, and I think some would say aspirational leadership and vision. I think that you gave in the House what we were talking about earlier. Yet we have two candidates in Mrs. Clinton and Mr. Trump, well, moral leadership and character may not be the first words on the tip of our tongue. What, uh, is that populist movement going to excuse that? <laughs> or they uh, seem to so far.
0: Well, look. I, I think each side has a big excuse. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I mean, <laughs> yeah, a, an, right. analytically, I mean, yeah. no matter what Clinton does, and no matter what her husband does, and no matter what the appearances are, mm-hmm. and no matter how many news reports there are. The fact is, if you belong either to the left ideologically or you belong to a a group who gets money from government, you will excuse virtually anything because the alternative to her is unacceptable, okay? And so, you know, it's it's gonna be virtually impossible to peel away below about 39% because that 39% has such an overwhelming investment in not the other. Similarly, on the other side, uh, if you're in absolute rebellion and you think that immigration has been a disaster and you think that the wars in the Middle East have been a disaster and you think that being driven out of the middle class by economic policies that have crushed you have been a disaster and you are really mad about Washington corruption and you really want change, and this is why everybody who beat up on Trump in the spring, remember, beating up on Trump by the Clintons is not a new experience for Trump. <laughs> he had 16 opponents, plus the news media, plus Mitt Romney. <laughs> I mean, I mean, all of these people spent all spring trying to figure out how to attack him. And I, 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 as many of you know, I'm on, on Fox as an analyst. And so I kept trying, and I also write two newsletters a week, a brief commercial at GingrichProductions.com, uh, which you can get if you want. And so I really, as an intellectual, as a historian, I, I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And I first started doing this. Chris and I watched the very first debate in August of last year where Trump got in this brawl with Megyn Kelly Uh, It was the second time I thought that he was totally off base. The first was when he attacked John McCain, Mm -hmm. which I thought was crazy. Mm -hmm. Uh, He went up after attacking McCain. Uh, He then went up after the fight. And and I watched that night. Everybody who was an analyst said, Donald Trump lost tonight. Frank Luntz did this focus group of people. And this was the first time I realized the, the weakness of the Luntz model, which is all these people are watching each other, so they're queuing off each other as a group. And they were unanimous. Trump had lost. And then Twitter, uh, Facebook, uh, other online polls, 65 to 70%. Now, out of 16 candidates, 65 to 70%, or 17, uh, 65 to 70% said Trump won. Well, as a historian, I, I stopped and I said, wait a second. If the entire elite is over here, and 65 to 70% of the American people who are watching, and again, these are largely skew Republican, but who are watching the debate are over here, there is a gap beginning to build that's astonishing. So I began to actually study what he was doing, which I had not done up to. We know Donald and we uh, hung out with him occasionally, but I didn't, you know, I didn't think of him as the guy who was gonna win the nomination. And what I began to realize was it's a very, bin- on the Republican side, not, not the Democrat, it's a very binary question that dominated the entire nomination. The people, who are sick and tired of Washington don't want somebody who can manage the table better. They want somebody who will kick the table over. So people like Jeb Bush and 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 uh, Chris uh, and and Chris Christie and John Kasich show up and they go, "I have great government experience." And for that block of the Republican Party, they said, "Got it, not you." Mm-hmm. Cruz came along and survived longer because Cruz is a brilliant Princeton-trained debater with Harvard Law degree who knows how to make a great case on the theory of how one would kick over the table as as a general idea described in a philosophical manner appropriate to Heritage Foundation. (laughs) (laughs) And so everybody, so all the right-wingers are going, well... And this is, this is the great tragedy of, of, of Cruz. All the right-wingers are going, you know, as compared to these guys who actually ran government, you're at least disruptive and you have a good story. And as Christie would get, or I mean, as Cruz would get two-thirds of the way through describing this, Trump would walk in the room, kick over the table. And so they're looking at this big guy physically who just kicked over the table, which is what they want. And this other guy who was describing what it would be like if somebody actually kicked over the table. And from that point on, they couldn't catch him. And it didn't matter how you hit him. You said, oh, you had companies went bankrupt. Yeah, but he'll kick over the table. Uh, you know, you've switched your positions 273 times since Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he'll kick over the table. Now, that may only be enough to get him to 40%, but he did beat 16 people. Last observation. I read these news media accounts, which I find... just." This, this, stunningly lacking in self-awareness. And they go, last week Hillary Clinton spent $23 million on advertising and Donald Trump spent zero. Yes, you could have done that about Jeb Bush and Donald Trump every week until Jeb dropped out. Mm-hmm. So it tells you nothing. Because she is out raising the money in order to buy the ads because she won't meet with the press. Because she can't stand the questioning. Trump, meanwhile, is not buying the ads or raising the money because he's cheerfully hanging out with the press, who are so into him that even when he beats them up and says, look, I know you're really a liar, but I'll take this one question. (laughs) And the reporter goes, oh, thank you. That's so nice of you. I mean, you have to wonder. One last piece of this, because many of you, how many of you watched Donald Trump the night of the Florida primary when he gave us The Trump steak, Trump water, Trump wine. Raise your hand, I'll be honest, okay?
4: It's amazing. I would
0: never ever theoretically have believed that Hillary Clinton could give a victory speech and have no network cover her live. Because Trump was playing with the networks. He was going, I wonder how many really stupid things I can do. (laughs) And keep them watching. And he knew one key thing. Any network which broke. Would lose half their audience in three minutes, That's right. and so he's there just messing around. He can go back and watch it. It is one of the most amazing examples of just playing around with the heads of the networks I've ever seen. And he knew what he was doing. He wasn't. I mean, he wasn't doing it as a self-indulgent thing. It was an experiment. Will the mainstream establishment
3: Republicans stay home, vote for Hillary, or will there be something emerging from the conventions?
0: And I think it'll be I split. I think you're split. going to get a fairly substantial number will go back to Trump in the end because there's Hillary. Right. and nice. The Supreme Court in particular drives them that way. Yeah. Uh, a significant number will stay home or they'll, you know, or, or they'll write in somebody's name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a, a minority, but a significant minority who'll get huge press coverage, uh, will endorse Hillary, you know, as, as Brent Scowcroft did the yes, other day yeah. and, and Secretary Paulson did. Uh, but again, it's, when you have, this is actually partly a validation of the scale of change Trump represents. By 1936, Al Smith, who'd been governor of New York, Democratic nominee for president, um, switches, leaves, leaves Roosevelt because he's decided the New Deal's too liberal. I mean, you know, these are real changes. Uh, I, I would argue that Jefferson annihilating the Federalists, Jackson breaking up the national establishment, Lincoln uh, uh, creating a new party, and Lincoln and the, the, the larger group creating a new party, and William Jennings Bryan defeating the Cleveland, uh, uh, Rover Cleveland, Gold Democrats, are examples. And then Goldwater and Reagan uh, breaking the the old establishment. These are examples of the kind of thing you're watching. Trump, like him, dislike him, he got more votes than anybody else has ever gotten as a Republican. People can say, yeah, there were more votes against him. That's true. There were 16 people running against him. I mean, he had 13 and a half million votes. Well, in our culture, There is a certain authority that comes with that that fact. I mean, he will be nominated. Uh, The convention will be a circus. I have no idea what it'll be like. Um, They turned down my idea, which was to have him come in on Thursday night riding an elephant. They said no. Uh, (laughs) So I've already felt rejected, and I don't know what that can But um, it'll all be different, that's all I can tell you.
1: final part of this discussion, Newt Gingrich talks about Bill Clinton's meeting at an airport with Attorney General Loretta Lynch. He's interviewed by former U.S. Labor Secretary Ann Logos.
3: I'd be remiss if I didn't give you an opportunity to talk about recent news. We have an Attorney General meeting on a tarmac with a a person under investigation. We have a Benghazi report that was uh, positioned as just a lot of reports, but a 300-page Democratic reaction with uh, surrogates and talking points. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we have a free trade and attack, and I was always wondering, whatever happened to free trade? So yeah. let's cover it. Okay. I, say, <laughs> I
0: know quickly. you have a view but, on, on this. On Benghazi, <laughs> let me just say, uh, I've only read the opening of it, but a friend sent me Jake Tapper at ABC, is apper- I mean, not ABC now, at CNN, has apparently put together a really good timeline walking through what happened that consolidates it all. And so, and I have great respect for Tapper. Uh, whose book, The Outpost, is a remarkable case study of uh, American courage and strategic stupidity combined into one event in (laughs) Afghanistan. Uh, So to Tapper, that's all I need to say about Benghazi. The meeting is more complicated. Um, If you assume that it was Bill Clinton who wanted the meeting, then you have to ask, did he want the meeting in order to throw up enough doubt you'd get to an independent council so that they could postpone everything until after the election? Uh, Did did he want the meeting because he was his usual carefree, totally irresponsible self and had no idea that it fit into a larger context like his wife being investigated Uh, and he was feeling lonely that day and he's always like Loretta Lynch and he thought, oh, why not? I mean, nobody would think anything was wrong if we got together because, after all, I'm Bill Clinton. And how could you think I would do anything inappropriate? I mean, you don't know. Uh, On the other hand, somebody suggested to me this morning, when you're together for 30 minutes... Mm -hmm. Uh, was it also a chance for her to brief him before the FBI saw his wife this morning? So all I can say is it had one useful thing if she meant it, and that is if she actually allows Comey to make the decision. I think at that point, I mean, they're now in a no-win environment where where I think the pressures are just unbelievable. If I were Hillary, I'd have been pretty mad because it gave her four more days of of being reminded about the scandals. I was going to
3: ask, what do you think she said to him when he got home last
0: night? (laughs) Probably nothing. (laughs) I think whatever she would have said to him, she said about 20 years ago, (laughs) and she has given up saying things to him. That's my guess. I mean, it's... You know, I once... I told I used to have a dog uh, named Kathleen's Pride of Riley after my mother. Uh, We got it at Fort Riley. It was a Doberman Pinscher. And uh, I spent uh, the summer of my senior year in high school trying to teach Pride how to read. And went reasonably well. We got her up to comics by late August. But I realized one day she didn't like to read. Uh, and she loved Chasing Rabbits, and I really liked to read. So we swapped roles. She went back to Chasing Rabbits, I went back to reading. And ever since, I've been in moments of you don't want to try to teach pride how to read with various people who you can't fix. Trying to get Bill Clinton to be responsible is comparable to teaching pride how to read. And it is just utterly impossible. It's just who he is. He's one of the most charming people I've ever known. He's astonishingly brilliant. And there's a screw loose. Uh, you know, and it's just unfortunate because uh, in many ways, he's a remarkable leader.
1: In the second part of our episode, another Republican presidential candidate is on stage at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Mitt Romney speaks with John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation on CBS, about the current race for president. Romney begins by detailing the lessons he learned while running for president in 2008 and again in 2012.
2: Well, I think one of the challenges that that we Republicans have is that through the primary process, and I'm sure it's true for Democrats too, but through the primary process, I'm speaking to people who are activists who are very, very close to Republican politics and to policy, and so I'll be talking about GDP growth, and I'll be talking about business formation, and how we need to get small businesses thriving. I'll talk about why we have to make America the most attractive place for entrepreneurs and business. And by the way, when you come to the general election, there are a lot of people that are, let's say, working on, on repainting cars or, or, or painting homes, and they're saying, what in the world is he talking about? GDP growth what the heck is GDP growth got to do with my life and, and all he's talking about is business and, and how's that going to improve my life and I think what I needed to do a lot better and Republicans generally need to do a lot better is to say number one what we're for which is we want to make middle-income Americans more prosperous and we want to help people get out of poverty And if they ask us, well, how are you gonna do that? Then we start talking about business formation and small business because the only way you can get real wages to go up in a country like ours is if you have more enterprises starting and growing and therefore hiring more people and competing to hire more people. And as they compete to hire more people, they have to get their wages up to hire the more people. That's the only way you get real wages up. But I was talking about policy when I think what would have been far more effective uh, is to talk about why the policy and why the policy is to get wages up, to get earnings up for middle-income families. And and of course, our Democrat friends, they wisely point out, he's talking about business all the time. He only cares about business people. Heck no, business people do fine under Democrats and Republicans. It's the middle class and the poor that need conservative
4: principles to see rising real wages. So you would have given, if you were running again, you'd give a series of speeches on that topic. What other two big tentpole speeches would Romney have given if he were running again? Well, well again, I mean, the issue that conservatives and
2: Republicans face is that we're not appealing to the growing population of America, the growing demographic populations, like we have to, millennials, minorities. Uh, these are two huge groups. Women, uh, women as a percentage of the population, obviously aren't growing, but but we have we have succeeded electorally in some parts because the fastest part of the demographic growth profile today is people 65 years of age and older, and we can do pretty well with them, but they're not going to be around forever. And, and where we're not doing so well is with millennials, young people, and with the, the large and growing minority populations. And until we can connect with those populations, we're going to have some difficulty electorally. And, and part of my problem was uh, to win the nomination, which is a year-long process or longer, you speak to people who vote in Republican primaries. And they tend not to be the millennials or college students. They tend not to be the minorities. So I'm speaking to largely white audiences, day in and day out. My Democratic friends, however, are speaking on college campuses and speaking to minority groups. So when I win the nomination and show up at a black church, they say, where have you been, Mr. Romney? Your opponents have been here for months. And I think someone who wants to win as a Republican, barring an unusual setting like we have now, perhaps, but someone who wants to win as a Republican has to, start, has to start competing early on in minority settings and in college campuses and with
4: millennials and, and connecting with women on issues that women care about. If you were to plot the distance between the campaign you've just described in our first 10 minutes and the campaign as it's being run by the Republican nominee now, how far away from you would you put the endpoint of where that campaign is?
2: Is there any distance there? I, I, uh, no, I, I, you know, um, you, you've heard what I've said about... about Would it be uh, in the same state? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've expressed my views about, about Mr. Trump, and, and, and I'm not going to elaborate on that, but, but I can... I, can, uh, I think... I, I think it's unfortunate that, that both on the left and the right... Um, with Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders uh, has run a campaign that said, look, all your problems, middle-class Americans, uh, are because of those big banks in Wall Street. And, and I've heard him say, we've bailed them out. It's time for them to bail us out. And so we're looking for, for someone to blame. And, and on the right, uh, our nominee is saying, hey, look, it's, it's these people here. It's these Mexicans coming across the border. By the way, more Mexicans have gone home in the last five years according to the Census Bureau, that have come in to the country. And, and, but it's them, and it's Muslims, and, and uh, I mean, unfortunately, I'm, I'm afraid that the things that Mr. Trump has said have been, uh, uh, unfortunately, branding of our party in a very negative way, and one which is consistent with the image many people have of my party. And so, yeah, I, I think it's, uh, it's taken us in a direction which will be uh, very unfortunate long-term.
4: Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, said today that, that Donald Trump is not a credible candidate. And he said, but he said there's a, there's a chance for him to become so. And, and this is a quote from him. He said, Now that you are in the general, people are looking for a level of seriousness that is typically conveyed by having a prepared text and teleprompter and staying on message. If Donald Trump used a teleprompter and stayed on message, would that answer the questions Republican lawmakers have about him?
2: No. I mean, I, it, might, it might help electorally. Uh, it may get more people to, to say I'm gonna sign on or to, to, to contribute or to vote for, uh, for Mr. Trump. Uh, I think Mr. Trump has demonstrated who he is by virtue of what he said in the process to this, this point. And what he says from this point forward may paper over that but I think, I mean, my own view is that, that in thinking about who you want to lead the greatest nation in the history of the earth, the most important single characteristic is their character and what kind of person they are in their heart. And, and that's, something which, that's something which people on the right and the left uh, express through their campaigns and through their lifetime, and you make your assessment. And, uh, and, and I'm, I'm not gonna add any fuel to whatever fire you might have burning on that regard yourself, but I, I, I just think that, uh, uh, that at this stage to say, okay, now we're gonna try and create different images for either candidate would, uh, would be something that the most American people are gonna ignore. This, this nation's leadership is essential to freedom. Here and around the world. The world depends on America. I mean, look what's happened in Syria. And the absence of American leadership has led to hundreds of thousands being killed, millions being displaced. It is in part responsible for even the, the Brexit vote with, with millions of people moving into Europe. I mean, a absence of American leadership has enormous consequence, and that and, and just, it just breaks my heart to, to see us talking about, with candidates that are talking about withdrawing from leadership. I'm not talking about military action. I'm talking about soft power and using our influence. And, uh, and this, is a, uh, this is a challenging
4: time for the world and one where we need leaders that will, that will stand up and, and lead. So if you, would, if you were still in business and somebody came to you and said, American leadership is that threatened. The conservative views that you hold dear and and think are important to a major party in America is that threatened. Would you in business have said, well, we hope it turns out okay. What would your action plan be?
2: Well, I'm not suggesting that everybody runs for office, Uh, uh, but but I do suggest that people who care about the direction of the country be involved very aggressively uh, financially, if you've if you got a lot of money, time-wise, if you got a lot of time. Uh, go ahead.
4: I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, you're talking... It's in your nature, though. Yes, it is, yes. And my genes. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but uh, you're talking in sort of apocalyptic terms when you say it breaks your heart, you know, when you talk about people should run for office and give money, but I'm talking about today. There are efforts afoot to try to find an independent candidate. You said you would support an independent candidate. So make the pitch for why an independent candidate who believes as you do in American leadership, who believes as you do in the tenets of conservatism, why they should run.
2: Well, I think um, it's very highly probable that either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump is the next president. And, and so, uh, an independent candidate, I'd I'd love to see someone run who I can vote for and feel good about. Uh, I have to be honest, uh, Hillary Clinton, in my view, is not an ideal person to be president. Uh, I disagree with her policies on a whole host of, uh, uh, of areas. Although as P.J. O'Rourke, did you read what he said? He said, you know, Hillary Clinton is wrong on every issue, but she's wrong within the normal parameters. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and so he's a he's a funny fellow but i but I disagree with her on so many things i can't possibly vote for, and at the same time uh, as i've expressed about mr trump i uh, I believe on the basis of temperament uh, and uh, uh, and and character that those are areas where where I feel I simply can't vote for him and so on that basis i'm going to be i'm going to be voting i 'll either write in my wife 's name who'd be an ideal president or uh, uh, or I'll write in the name of a, of a third, uh, third party candidate. and But most people will choose between those two. And, and by the way, I understand both arguments. For, for people who are conservatives and have always voted Republican and want to vote Republican again and say there's just no way I can vote for Hillary Clinton, I, I understand that there are some who, who say, like me, I just can't vote for Mr. Trump for the reasons I've outlined. But, there, but they say, uh, on the other hand, they say if we elect Hillary Clinton, we're gonna have a court which will take us in a direction I don't like. And therefore, I'm gonna vote for Mr. Trump and support him because it's, it comes down to the Supreme Court. Both arguments I understand. I'm not gonna argue with people as they choose uh, which path to, uh, to take. Um, but, but for me, it's a matter of personal conscience and I can't vote for either one of those two people.
1: That's former Republican presidential candidate and former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney. He spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival held in June and July in Aspen, Colorado. We're opening the lines of communication and we want to hear from you. Later this month we'll air an Aspen Ideas talk about the struggle between police and communities of color. With fatal shootings in Louisiana, Minnesota, and Texas, the sensitive topic is top of mind. We want to hear your questions around the issue. We'll pose them to one of the experts who spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Please record a voice memo or jot out a question and send it to AspenIdeas2go at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service. Discover more about the Aspen Ideas Festival at aspenideas.org. Follow the festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and myself and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs. Thanks for listening.